Talk 1110, 99.3 WBT. Hour number three, the Pete Callender Show. 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. The email Pete at thepetecallendershow.com. And remember, get the podcast at any of your favorite podcast platforms. It does not matter to me which one. Uh, you can get it also at the WBT app. You can listen live on that as well. Uh, Alrighty, so uh, Murdoch trial underway today. And as you heard probably in one of the uh, newscasts, the day started off, uh, I was watching it home and started off a little bit late. And then it became apparent why that was the case. Apparently, two of the jurors got COVID, tested positive for COVID, and so they got sent home. And they have a, you know, they've got a pool of um, alternates, right? And I think they said they went with eight. I think they said they had eight alternates. Now they've, and so they lost two to COVID, and there was one that they lost, uh, another juror they lost. So they've they've already swapped out three. So they're down to five. They're down to five <laughs> and uh, alternates. And the problem here is that if COVID rips through the jury in that courtroom and they all get sick, that's a mistrial. This is they're they're very concerned about this, and they're not going to know until people start popping positives in about another forty eight hours. And so, uh, what Dick Harputlian was talking about, the one of the defense attorneys, he was saying, "Well, you know what? Maybe we should um, hold off on the uh, on the trial. Maybe we should just like all take a break for a couple days and then come back." And the judge was like. No, we're just going to try to plow through it and we'll make a determination. We start getting more positives, whatever. But like, yeah, you don't want to have to retry this case. But the, this this could happen. This this could actually end the trial and they're going to have to re-rack the whole thing. Oh, also, the clerk of court is out sick with COVID, as is one of her staffers. So that's not looking good. Not looking good. So after... and and. I got the sense that Harputlian was really, he was trying to nudge the judge to do the, like a, a like a two or three day break. Um, and the judge wasn't really, I mean, he was listening to the arguments, but he did not go along with it. And they're like, well, what about masks? And the judge starts making some comments, you know, everybody really should probably be wearing masks. And they start handing out masks to everybody. And then I think it was the, the attorney general, the law, uh, the uh, uh, Waters, right? Creighton Waters, the lawyer with the attorney general's office, the state attorney general's office says maybe we should uh, social distance everybody in the courtroom too. So, in other words, restrict access. So instead of like a hundred people being in there, you'd only have like twenty. You know, um, the judge did not allow that either, but he did say like everybody should be able, everybody should be probably should be wearing masks, you know, just to stay safe. And it's like, oh my god, are we still having this fight? How are we still having this fight? If you're sitting in a room, you know, bring some fans in. That would actually go, that would that would do far more to keeping people safe than having everybody wear masks. They're not talking. The people in the audience are not talking. They're, they're not, they'll get thrown out of that courtroom if they start jibber-jabbering, right? So bring in a bunch of fans, get some cross-ventilation going, and get the air moving out of the room. You want to keep people safe, that's a better way to do it. So I could I get the sense that Harputlian is is angling for this extra time. 
But it was weird because the other day, last week, he kind of was, uh, hey, what's happening with the state's case? When are they finally going to wrap up? We got, you know, plane tickets to buy for all of our experts and hotel accommodations for our experts. And we need to have some certainty as to when the state is finally going to wrap up their case. I mean, if they're going to ever wrap up their case. And um, and the state said, well, yeah, we'll probably be through by midweek. So it seemed like they were trying to get the state to hurry up and finish. But then today it was like they're trying to get another delay. And then the judge said anything else. And the the state said, yes, Your Honor, as a matter of fact, there is. And after Creighton Waters explained what it was, that was a new development. I now know why <laughs> Harputlian was trying to get a two or three day delay. So get this. Somebody that works at General Motors is watching the Murdoch trial. And this happens, by the way. It I think it's happened. It's happened at least in at least two different trials that I covered that were um, court TV. People are watching the coverage and then they come forward with something. And when the guy got up from the FBI on Friday, guy got up from the FBI and testified about the uh, GPS tracking location information and all that that came out of the car. And remember, they had, they had, they had to uh, uh, they had to break into they had to like uh, break through the encryption in the car's black box, and it took them a year to do it, and they couldn't get everything out of the black box because of that. And they didn't get some of the GPS stuff. They didn't get all of the info. And somebody from General Motors then apparently saw that testimony, went about retrieving the data, and sent it to the state. And so now they have it. And so the state got it on Friday evening, I think, and then turned it all over, because you have to, turns it all over to the defense for them to look at. The defense got it on Sunday. And so they're like, there's so much here. And the the uh, the attorney, the prosecutor, Creighton Waters, he's like, there really isn't a lot of stuff of real value here. I mean, it just basically corroborates the timeline that we have so you know, masterfully assembled here. No, I'm kidding, but he didn't say that. But he, he was like, there's not a lot of relevant stuff here. It just basically supports what we already know is the timeline. And Harputlian is like, um, yeah, uh, with all due respect, don't tell me <laughs> what, what's relevant and what is not relevant. I'm going to look through it all myself. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yes, you do that. But there's a lot of data. There's a lot of data. All right, so that was, I suspect, why he was trying to get... Um, he was trying to get a couple days because of COVID, you know, just an abundance of caution here, you know, and also it'll help me uh, go give, give me time to go through the data. So we'll see. The whole thing could end up in a mistrial. That would be our luck, right? Um, all right. So uh, next up we have uh, right now, I think, actually, throughout the morning, they've been uh, calling up the SLED agents and they've been testifying about uh, very it, it, very boring. That's why I'm not, I'm not going in depth on all of this stuff because this was the DNA collection. And, you know, in order to do that, they have to, I took this, I put it in this bag and then I took that bag. I did this with it and I swabbed this and I run this test and this connects to that. And all of it is to say that they found DNA, but no blood on Alec Murdoch's shirt. 
the one that he was wearing when cops got there, which makes sense if he went there and touched the bodies, right? But they didn't find any blood on him. He was clean. Everybody's been saying that. I'm, at this point, I'm not really sure what exactly, what value this evidence has yet, but I've only been watching during commercial breaks throughout the first two hours of the program here, so I don't know. Um, what else happened? On Friday, we had the witness that was the uh, uh, the former housekeeper, but also friend. She was Maggie Murdoch's friend. Her name was Blanca uh, Turbiate, I think is how she pronounced it, Turbiate Simpson. And uh, she worked for the family, and she did a lot of the, uh, the, the housekeeping chores and stuff, and that included the laundry. And so she knew what clothes were at the Moselle property because she washed the clothes there and would put them back. And so when she arrives at the house the next day at the invitation of Alec, who says, can you come by the house and tidy it up? You know, like Maggie likes, you know, like how Maggie liked it, right? The picture that the prosecutors are trying to paint of this guy is a, as is of a manipulator, right? That he, as, one, as somebody said earlier on in the trial, that he was, uh, he was an expert at BS. And, and he could get people to do stuff. He could play on people's emotions. He, he was a personable, fun kind of guy. And, you know, a lot of people liked being around him and wanted to please him and all this stuff. They thought he was nice. They thought he was great. And he used that. He manipulated people. This is what the prosecutor, I don't know if this is true. I'm just telling you, this is the prosecution's claim. And she knew what the, the clothing was, where it was stacked up in the closets and all that. And so when he calls her and says, you know, he, well, she finds out he's dead or the, that Maggie and Paul are dead. They've been murdered. She then gets this uh, call from Alec who says, come to the house and clean up. And she does so. The following day, which was after all these other people were in the house that night of the murder, she had made food for them, for the family, before they got killed. She had made the food, but all that food was left in the pots and put in the fridge, and she found that to be odd. But we don't know if the people who gathered at the house after the murders may have put the food into the fridge. So I don't know what to make of that. All Same thing with the clothing. She says it was all moved around. But there, also there was... Um, uh, there's somebody had taken a shower, but we don't know when that occurred. Alec didn't say he had taken a shower that day, but apparently he did because there was water all over the floor. There was a wet towel and he had grabbed clothes. He had changed his clothes. And she said she never saw his button down shirt and pe- uh, khaki pants and brown loafers, which were always at that house. She never saw them again after the night of the murders. That's the clothes. Those are the clothes that he was wearing in the video that Paul shot while they were walking around with the trees. That outfit is gone. Where did it go? Don't know. Alrighty, so from the last day of testimony, so Friday afternoon and then uh, into this morning, there the prosecution keeps putting together more data uh, with the cell phone uh, 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 tracking stuff and the, the GPS coordinates and they're, they're the, they're trying to prove that Alex Murdoch was at the dog kennels on the property when uh, the the murders occurred. They don't have the guns. They don't have his clothes that he was uh, wearing from earlier in the day. To me, there's like that's a big red flag. 
And that's something the defense could actually try to address by producing the clothing, right? If if he didn't do it, he still has the clothes around. Call the cops and have them come in to the house and take the clothes. But where did they go? So this housekeeper's testimony was, I think, not great for the defense. Now, again, this is still the state's presentation of the case. And so the defense and I'm going to be saying much the same thing when the defense starts up. I'm going to be accused of, uh, you know, siding with the defense because I can see where like, okay, I understand what you're trying to do, your argument you're trying to make and you're putting this stuff in there. And um, and then you become it's more convincing. So I go back and forth and I listen to this. And the night of the murders. Alex was wearing what the housekeeper Simpson recognized as a seafoam colored shirt also a pair of loafers and khaki pants that she had washed frequently she recognized the clothes as the same in the video that was shot by paul uh, the snapchat video of them next to the trees uh soon after the murders she said that murdoch had a frantic conversation with her He was pacing around the room saying, I've got a bad feeling. I've got a bad feeling. Murdoch asked if she remembered what shirt he was wearing when he left Moselle on June 7th, 2021. She recalled him wearing a Vineyard Vines collared shirt. But Murdoch seemed to recall wearing a different polo shirt. She said, I didn't say anything, but I was kind of thrown back because I don't remember him wearing that shirt that day. I know what shirt he was wearing because I fixed his collar before he walked out the door. She says, I didn't really know whether he was trying to get me to say he wore the shirt. If I were to be asked if that was the shirt he was wearing, like, was he trying to plant that information? And this is the same thing that he did in all of these other examples with different people. He did it with the other, uh, the caregiver, one of the caregivers, right? When he said, you know, I was here 30, 40 minutes, right? And she knew that wasn't right. And she got scared. She got nervous, she said. So much so, she told her husband about it. Um, Simpson also noticed that the pots and pans were not left out on the stove which she said was unusual, uh, and that her pajamas were uh, laying on the uh, in the doorway of the laundry room, and she said that was atypical as well. But here's the problem. The housekeeper's going in there the day after the murders. But, the, at, but the, that night, like overnight after the murders, there were people up in that house, like friends of the family and, and family members and stuff, and colleagues, lawyers, they were all up in that house, which why wouldn't you shut that down as a crime scene? I don't know. But even more shocking is the fact that Alec calls up the housekeeper and tells him, hey, Blanca, can you go and tidy up the house? And she doesn't think anything of it. She's like, okay, sure. And he, and then he says, oh, yeah, and by the way, when you drive to the property, don't drive past the kennels. Take that other entrance in so this way you don't disturb law enforcement that's out there. She still doesn't think, oh, this is a crime scene. I probably shouldn't go in there and start tidying up a crime scene, literally cleaning a crime scene. Right? Because he said, he, because he asked her. He has a way of manipulating people. That's the case that they're trying to build, right? That's their argument. And he made it, he, he made an appeal 
to Blanca that knew or that he knew that it which would work because you know how Maggie likes it. You always you were always so close with her and all that, you know, and people are trying to comfort him and this is awful. And so then he tries to plant some information or maybe spoil a crime scene. Um, there was also a conversation she testified to that she had had with Maggie. Oh, also, when she cleaned out the car, she went to get the car after they uh, were done uh, uh, inspecting it. She went and picked it up from impound, and she brings it back. And when she's cleaning it again, she finds Maggie's wedding ring is, on, is under the driver's seat on the floorboard. Is that odd? Giving the impression that she was not happy in the marriage. But there's no proof yet entered that that was the case. She did testify that there was this conversation she had where Maggie was crying and she was deeply concerned about the lawsuit that was filed against the family over the boat case, over the boat wreck that Paul had caused by his drunk boating that killed Mallory Beach and that they were trying to get $30 million out of the Murdochs and they didn't have it and Maggie broke down crying over it. Is that enough? I don't know. Not for me, at least not yet. But they still got a long way to go. Or they're going to have to re-rack the whole thing. Because uh, COVID. <laughs> it's unbelievable. All right, so on the Murdoch trial, here's an email uh, from Stan who says, Pete, in regards to people involved in the Murdoch trial being infected with COVID that threatens to halt or delay it, uh, maybe someone on the defense team snuck a pangolin into the courtroom after hours. That's possible. It's possible. Or maybe it was one of those balloons. Um, regarding the balloons, uh, the response of all the objects in the sky recently by the people in charge of monitoring the airspace and defense of our country. The only thing that makes sense is that these people are children of the 60s and they must be seeing what Jimi Hendrix saw. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. Oh, kiss the sky? That's what he says? I thought he said, while I kiss this guy. Oh, I'm kidding. I didn't think that. Anyway, that area that area is finally catching up on us now in more ways than one. Um, as for caller Winston, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Winston called in earlier, and uh, he has a very high opinion of himself as it relates to, or I should say in contrast to, the audience of uh, WBT. I noticed. Yeah, I caught that, too. And this is what John is writing about. Poor Winston. For being so much smarter than the average talk show listener, he sure has a hard time expressing his superior ideas on the radio. That was kind of interesting. All I was asking him, who is the they in this conspiracy of the balloons? Who is the they? Who's launching them? Because my theory, and I admit it's a theory right now, but it is actually backed up by some real evidence, not evidence from some other event, which is that is often, by the way, it's like a tactic of uh, a lot of conspiracy theorists who, uh, first off, they if you believe in one th- conspiracy theory, you are more likely to believe in several. And if you believe in several, you're more likely to believe in all of them. And I think Winston at one point in our past conversations indicated that he uh, that there isn't a theory he doesn't subscribe to. Like all of the conspiracy theories he agrees with. So one of the tactics that a lot of folks who traffic in this stuff, and I don't deny that conspiracies occur, by the way, but a lot of the the tactics uh, 
or, or one of the main tactics that a lot of them uh, use is when asked a question about a specific theory or a detail in a specific theory, like I did with Winston, he will then cite other conspiracies, other theories, as if those prove his theory on this other issue. And he did it today. He did it with what he started to say, well, think about what they've done with the COVID and with this 9-11 and they did it with this. And like, so he then cites all of these other theories as proof that his theory must be true now. But he, he can't ever talk about the details of the specific theory right now. When I, I pressed him repeatedly, tell me who are they? Who are the people or aliens or whatever? Like, who's launching them? Because at first, it sounded like he was saying it was the U.S. government that was launching them. And then tracking our response, the humans are on the ground here, all of the citizens' responses on their cell phones. To what end, I don't know. But so I just simply asked, who, wait, who's they? Do you mean the U.S. government or the Chinese? And he could never answer. And then he starts throwing out 9-11 stuff and whatever. And that's, and that's when he made the comment about how he's, you know, he's basically smarter than everybody else that listens to talk radio. And then he gave the free plug for Judge Napolitano's show, <laughs> which is so fantastic, I, I guess. I don't know. I, whatever. But, yeah, Winston and I have a bit of a, uh, a little bit of a history. I don't suffer 9-11 truthers very well. Um, and so when he tried calling in on that, we had it out the first time. And so he keeps every now and again, he'll call back in and he'll try to sneak in something like he did today. Uh, you know, he throws out the nine 11 truth or thing. And, uh, and I'm sure in his mind, he thinks he's doing God's work. He's, you know, turning people on to the truth. Um, but when you can't, when, when you can't present evidence, and the failure to produce evidence to support your theory then becomes evidence. This is not a this is not logic that you are engaged in, and I try to engage in logic. So, um, let me see here. This was from. Uh oh. Ellen says, Pete, I live in South Charlotte. I just saw two military jets fly over. Maybe on their way to pop another balloon. Somebody else just called and said that too. Let me look out the window here. I don't see anything. No. No, I don't see anything. But I don't have my glasses on, and they're really high up in the air, so I probably I probably wouldn't see anything. Um, let's see. I had some other messages here regarding the other topic on the uh, Democratic Party. Do 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 the uh, the new Democratic Party chair is a 25-year-old activist named Anderson Clayton. She worked on the Iowa caucus uh, team for Kamala Harris. Did Harris win that caucus? I mean, I know she didn't win the, the presidency, obviously. I think she dropped out before California, her own state, right? Anyway, uh, then she went to work for Elizabeth Warren, and she didn't win either. And then she went to work for that woman, Amy McGrath, who tried to beat Mitch McConnell and kentucky and she didn't win either um but they're very excited about her now and so they they voted out the 73 year old former state lawmaker first black chair of the democratic party of north carolina they voted her out they also tossed out floyd mckissick 
longtime state lawmaker uh, all, and a black man. Uh, they got rid of him too. put uh, two white people in there. They did elect a black woman to be the, th- the what, second vice chair. And then another fellow named Elijah something or other. Anyway, so they, I mean, they cleaned house. And they said it was because, you know, they wanted an energetic party. But, like, these are the activists, right? These are the activist uh, members of the party in that wing, that left wing. And they're like, we're going to go out into the rural communities and we're going to knock on doors and we're going to get people to vote for us. Okay, give it a shot. I mean, look, I... It, I, I guess it's better than not doing it. And Republicans are doing the same thing in areas where they need to be stronger in. <clears throat> you know, the whole idea here, like for Republicans, it's the inverse, where you don't want to lose the the metro urban areas by as much as you lose them by. If you can just shrink the gap a little bit, then you got enough votes statewide to help make up the difference, right, for statewide races. And the same thing is true for the Democrats with the rural areas. So instead of losing 70% to 30%, you know, if you could lose or if you or rather if you if you could lose 70, 30 rather than 90, 10, that's better. Right. If you could pick up some some votes, some seats out there. Democrats had a problem. They actually didn't even run a lot of people in some of those districts, too. And you can't beat somebody with nobody. I mean, that was we talked to Stephen Wiley about that. He's the guy who recruits candidates and stuff for the uh, House Republicans in the General Assembly. All right. So I got a message regarding this topic. It's about the. Uh, Well, I'll just read it. I won't say who it's from, but they know what they're talking about. Let me just say that. The new North Carolina Democratic Party leader is, (laughs) well, let's just say in the county where she resides, where she's the chairperson county, she is known as Sparkles. She worked on several losing campaigns. Local Democrats lost confidence in her. Her goal is to pollute rural areas with more Liz Warrens and Nita Alams. The broadband company that she works for is a mystery, but I think that company is similar to some of the new farm groups that are organizing and strategizing for Democrats under the guise of business. She'll push the Democrats further left and cause more Democrats to become unaffiliated. That increase in unaffiliated voters will lead to more county GOP groups to push for closed primaries. As for the money... Uh, This person says the money that Roy Cooper funnels to candidates from his own super PAC via the Democratic Party is huge and was not accounted for in the telling of that story at the assembly, which I will circle back to. Jeffrey Billman, he's got a uh, story up at the assemblync.com. The title is Tangled Up in Blue. He reports on criminal justice and politics from Durham. He's the former editor-in-chief of Indie Week, which is a leftist publication. And uh, he started this piece off. This was written before the weekend election of the uh, Democratic Party chairman, uh, Anderson Clayton, in North Carolina. He says Anderson Clayton was in middle school when Democrats lost the General Assembly in 2010. They were still in the minority in 2015 when she moved to Boone to pursue a political science degree at App State, where she became the student body president, and four years later when she left for rural Iowa to volunteer as an organizer for the presidential campaigns of first Kamala Harris and then Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Then, of course, she went to work as a rural field director for Amy McGrath's long-shot bid to oust uh, Mitch McConnell. She came away disillusioned, quote, It was a really interesting experience to see a massive amount of money that was put into that campaign, $96 million, and none of it actually made it down to the infrastructure of the Democratic Party in eastern Kentucky, she said. 
She returned to Person County in 2021 determined to do something different. She volunteered to chair the county Democratic Party, a job nobody else wanted, and says she knocked on every door in Roxborough, population 8,134. Democrats flipped three of five city council seats. She says that could happen across rural North Carolina right now. But the opposite is happening. Over the last decade, Republicans have turned rural and exurban areas deeper red. Democrats are now competitive in only not even more than 25 of the state's 100 counties. As an increasingly urban party, Democrats have lost every presidential and U.S. Senate contest in North Carolina since 2008. Another uh, underperformance in the next election, and uh, that could shatter the perception of North Carolina as a swing state. And that then would lead to a a starving of resources and exiling the state Democrats to the political wilderness by the outside money groups, by the big-time Democrat donors, right? They're, they're not going to keep sending money that's go, you know just going down in defeat year after year after year. So they made a high-stakes high bet. Do you stick with Cooper's politi- Roy Cooper's political machine, or do you roll the dice on an uncertain course and untested leader. Now, Anderson Clayton argues that the party's leaders are too tolerant of losing. So, so like, is this like a Trumpian thing? Almost, almost it does sound like that. It's a, it's a little close. They have a quote in here from State Senator Greg Meyer, a Chapel Hill Democrat. He said, We failed to establish an independent brand that helps North Carolina voters see what it is we want for our own state. In order to, he did not endorse anybody in this race, but he said in order to create a state-specific brand, we have to have coherent messaging, particularly to reach beyond people who are not inside the existing Democratic bubble. Okay, there was a lot of words that Senator Meyer said there, but what that all comes down to is the National Democrat brand is toxic in North Carolina. That's what he's saying. We have to, we, he says, we failed to establish an independent brand that helps Tar Heel State voters see what we want for this state. Don't you see? We're not like all of them up there in D.C., the crazies. We're some of the good Democrats. We're the good ones. Why would you need to do that? Why would you need to differentiate yourself from the National Party? And by the way, um, with um, Clayton's win, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. I think you're going to get more of the embracing of the National Party identity. Um, Others point to the party's decision to funnel $1.6 million to state Senate candidate, a state candidate, uh, who won by five points. Meanwhile, four Democrats lost their House races by fewer than 1,000 votes, right? I believe that was Cooper's decision. In addition, the young Democrats of Rowan Cabarrus said they helped now State Representative Diamond State and Williams flip her district, thus preserving Cooper's veto despite the Democratic Party's refusal to provide the resources they requested. Right? So this is a grassroots establishment or machine fight that's occurring inside the Democrat Party. Other Democrats resurfaced longstanding complaints about the influence of consultant Morgan Jackson, whose nexus strategies manages the campaigns of Roy Cooper and his heir apparent, 
Attorney General Josh Stein. Oh, by the way, did you see this? Great news for Josh Stein the other day. Great. Oh, he's so happy. Great news for Josh Stein. He is allowed to lie about everybody he's running against in his campaign ads. Right, like he did the last time he ran. Right. And then he got sued over it or or a criminal complaint was filed because there's a state law that says you're not allowed to, like, defame people when running for office. And, yeah, the uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals came down with a ruling and they said that Josh Stein would uh, likely win that case. And so uh, because it's likely unconstitutional. And so the DA dropped the charges. So congratulations, Josh Stein. You will be uh, permitted to continue to lie, tell egregious lies about your political opponents. That should that that might cut down on some of your opponents in a primary. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.